You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. We use the term crown jewel to describe the most attractive or valuable part of a collection or group. In the business world, a crown jewel would be a product line, which is the pride and joy of the company, maybe the biggest uh, source of income, the biggest revenue stream. A collector might have a crown jewel item in his or her collection that is prized above the rest. Well, the British monarchy uh, literally has crown jewels worn at state occasions and at coronations. One is coming up here in the next few months. And among these royal treasures are two diamonds that are the crown jewels of the crown jewels, if you follow me. They're called the Cullinan diamonds. And if you have a name for a piece of rock, you know it's significant. The Cullinan diamond was actually a single diamond discovered on January 25th, 1905. Frederick Wells was the superintendent of the premier mine in South Africa. And he showed up for work just like he did every day and began a routine inspection of the mine. And he got about 18 feet underground just walking through and looked up and happened to see something that, that was sparkling that caught his attention. And when he stopped for a closer look, he realized that he had found the largest diamond ever discovered. The Cullinan diamond was named after the mine's owner. And in its uncut state, it was a 3,106 carat diamond. If you put that on an engagement ring, you'd probably need a sling to go with it. It was so heavy. For comparison's sake, it was about the size of a man's fist and weighed almost one and a half pounds. And from this single diamond, nine major stones were cut, including a bunch of other smaller pieces. Nine major stones, which were acquired by the English crown, the monarchy, and put in the British crown jewel collection. So the two largest ones were set in the band of the imperial crown underneath the red ruby, the large, massive diamond in the, the center there at the bottom. That's the first one. And the second one is the crown jewel in the scepter, the royal scepter. And these, along with the other treasures of the monarchy, are held in the Tower of London. About 2.5 million people a year, at least before COVID, uh, would visit that on average to see the collection of jewels and, and to respond with oohs and ahs, right? When you see something that amazing, you can't help but exclaim or, or have a response. These jewels evoked a response because everyone that looks at them can just plainly see that they're a treasure. Their, their worth and their value and their beauty are really just unsurpassed and priceless. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, presents Jesus as the crown jewel of all the universe. Of all the treasures in the world, of all the wonderful and glorious and beautiful things that we could go and see and experience, Jesus is the crown jewel. He is the most valuable, the most attractive part of the universe. He's so majestic that his glory outshines everything and everyone. There is nothing that compares. And just like a massive diamond has dozens of facets that each reflect its brilliance as you turn the diamond over in your hand, so also the Lord Jesus has an unlimited number of facets that as we consider him from different angles, 
These things reflect his brilliance and his glory. We could study him from a million different angles for a million years and still find glorious truth and be amazed by his magnificence. And this passage of scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, presents Jesus to us in all of his brilliance. There are at least nine facets or nine truths about Jesus that that show us who he is, that allow us to gaze at him. And because this paragraph is so densely packed with theology, many commentators believe it could have been originally a creed or a hymn of the early church. Whether Paul used uh, an existing creed and tailored it to his purpose or he wrote it here to put in to this inspired letter. And Paul includes this section not just to magnify Jesus, although that would be worth it in of itself, but all of these truths that we see here are actually going to minister to the need of the Colossians. If you remember, the Colossian church was experiencing a battle for truth. There was a a pervading worldview or a heresy that was there. And these realities about Jesus is going to address that heresy and teach sound doctrine. Well, what are some of the truths that we learn? We learn that Jesus is God who created the universe and sustains it by his power. Jesus died on the cross to atone for sin. He reconciled mankind to God and made peace. Jesus also has risen from the dead, founded the church, and remains the church's head. And because of the amount of truth that really bursts from this paragraph, it's difficult to put put it into a precise outline. But it seems that there are two major sections. If you glance at your Bible, verses 15 through 17 are one major section, and verses 18 through 20 are the second. Verses 15 through 17 present Jesus as the crown jewel of all creation, and verses 18 through 20 present Jesus as the crown jewel of the church. And as I studied this text this week, I found that that there are so many parallels between the two sections. In fact, basically every single phrase has a match in in the other one. There's a mirroring going on. But there's one phrase that has no parallel, one phrase that sticks out, and it makes it a point of emphasis for us. That phrase is found at the end of verse 18. Would you look there with me? The end of verse 18 says that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so what's going on here is this. All these glorious truths about Jesus lead to one clear, compelling, indisputable conclusion that Jesus is Lord and he is preeminent over all things. That's the indisputable conclusion of this text. Preeminent simply means to have the highest rank, to have the most lofty status. And so when this passage says that Jesus is preeminent, it means that he is the foremost being in all the universe, that there is none greater than him. And just as the crown jewels evoke a response over in Great Britain, so also this crown jewel, our Savior Jesus, demands a response. And the response to Jesus' preeminence is a simple one. If he's preeminent over all the universe, then he needs to be preeminent over your life. If he is first place in all things, you must recognize him as first place in your life. 
to continue this analogy of Jesus as the crown jewel, would you say that Jesus is the crown jewel of your life? That he is your most prized possession, most treasured part, most supreme part of your life? Does he preside over everything you do? Does he have the highest status and the deepest loyalty in your heart? Because that's the response his glorious position not only deserves, but demands. Now, it's possible to be a Christian for a long time and not treasure Jesus in this way. It's possible to go through life and have our hearts ensnared by sin and distracted by the things around us. And just because we may have treasured Christ one time in the past does not automatically mean that continues for the rest of your life. Other things can creep into our heart and steal away our affection. And what I'm troubled over is that many Christians would agree, oh yes, Jesus, he's the crown jewel of creation. But we could admit that on one hand, and yet he doesn't take preeminence in their life. And I don't, I don't know what your heart says. I don't know, and I can't see in your heart, that's probably a good thing for all of us, Right? But I don't want us to just say, oh, yes, Jesus, he's Lord, he's preeminent, someday he'll come back. I want you to see how great he is and make him the Lord of your heart so that you walk through each day aware that Jesus is preeminent and that his glory is what you pursue. If Jesus is the crown jewel over all creation, psst, he is, <laughs> then you must treasure him as the crown jewel of your life. And here's the wonderful truth about all this. Jesus is infinitely brilliant, so gazing on him never gets old. Like a magnificent diamond, we can turn Jesus over and over again and view him from many different angles and be surprised over and over again to see his glory afresh. As the Puritan John Flavel said, he lived about 400 years ago, the longer you know Christ... And the nearer you come to him, still the more do you see of his glory. Every farther prospect of Christ entertains the mind with a fresh delight. He is, as it were, a new Christ every day, and yet the same Christ still. All that is an introduction to this text. So let's look at this passage. We're going to take verses 15 through 17 today. And we'll look at verses 18 through 20 next week. And in these three verses, there's one truth in each verse that show how Jesus is the crown jewel of all creation. And each of these truths leads us and prompts us to respond by treasuring Christ more. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There are two phrases here, and both phrases emphasize this, that Jesus is truly God. And our response is to worship him acceptably. The first phrase is easy to understand, at least more so than the second. Jesus displays the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Well, our Bibles teach us that God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He cannot be seen. 1 Timothy 6, 16 describes God as dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Yet, we can see God. We can see him 
Because we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus because Christ Jesus makes the invisible God visible. John 1.18 affirms this same truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, he has exegeted him, he has explained him. In elementary school, I received a microscope as a gift. I don't know if that was a, a hint from my parents that I needed to be more involved in the science, but I think I only had it for a few months. But I thought it was pretty cool to, to take that microscope out and put some object on the glass, and you could see it in, in microscopic detail. You could take a piece of leather or, or a piece of material. What really freaked me out was taking a drop of drinking water and putting it under the microscope and going, what is growing in the drinking water? That was, not, uh, that, that, was, that was a revelation to me. But here's the point. The microscope made unseen things visible. Jesus makes the unseen God visible. And when it says that Jesus is the image of God, it's not saying that Jesus is like God. It is that he is God. He represents God in every detail. There's no inconsistency between God and Christ because Jesus is God. Now, the second phrase also emphasizes his deity, but it, it, we need to explain it a little more carefully here. Jesus occupies the position of priority. He is the firstborn over all creation. And maybe you've run into some people that, that have a different belief system, a cult or another church, and they claim that this verse supports their belief that Jesus is a created being. Well, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. So he was the first being created in this world. So let's drill down here for a moment to make sure we understand what this means and what this doesn't mean. The word firstborn in our minds often is used to describe the person who was birthed first. My wife and I are both firstborns. I am my parents' child born first, which is a clunky way to put it, but I'm the firstborn. While that's true, is that the only way to use the word? And if you're following my logic, you're probably saying, there has to be another way. <laughs> no, that's not the only way to, to interpret this word. The firstborn status did not always refer to the person firstborn. Because in both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, the rights of the firstborn included special privileges. Sometimes these privileges did not go to the child born first. Sometimes the privilege or the rights of the firstborn did not go to the child born first. There are a number of illustrations in the Old Testament, maybe some of them that you're thinking of, but think about, let me give you three examples. Think about Jacob's children. He had 12 sons. Who was the child born first? It was the son, Reuben. But Reuben was immoral with one of Jacob's concubines, so the firstborn status went to a different son. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and when he came to Jacob to have his father bless his own grandsons, Jacob changed his hands and crossed them and blessed the younger the younger son was blessed with the rights of the firstborn. Jacob himself, Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob received the blessing, even if he stole it in a way that wasn't appropriate. God had promised that he would have it someday. I said three, that is three. Let me give you one more. I'll give you a fourth. Where was King David in birth order? Number eight. He was number eight. And I haven't, I haven't read any of those birth order books, so I don't know what that says about him. But God says in Psalm 89, 27, this is really interesting. 
Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is God talking. And in the Greek text, it's the same word firstborn that appears here in Colossians 1. David is obviously not the firstborn. He's the eighthborn. So what does it mean that he is the firstborn of the kings of the earth? It means, as the second phrase explains, he is the highest or the greatest king in all the earth. So when Colossians 1.15 refers to Jesus as the firstborn, it does not mean created first. It can and it does mean that Jesus has all the rights and the privileges of the firstborn. He is superior to all creation. He is superior to all creation. Now if Jesus is God, and he is, then he is worthy of our worship. And if we treasure Jesus appropriately, that means that we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's easy to think of worship as just being what we're doing right now, right? You come to church, you you dress up a little bit, and, and, and you sing some songs, you hear some people pray, and you hear the guy talk, and then you go home. That's worship. Well, externally, that may be what we're doing, but true worship is much more than that right now, and true worship extends beyond that as well. There are two points about worship I want to make here. First, worship requires devotion. Worship requires devotion. Think of worship as devotion plus adoration. When we sing and we praise the Lord, we are adoring him. But if you are devoted to him, worship will reflect the depth of your love and loyalty. If you're not really devoted to him, your worship is going to be shallow. Worship will be shallow if your devotion is not deep. Why do so many Christians have a low view of public worship? Why are they so bored by coming to hear the preaching and teaching of God's word? Perhaps it's because they're not really devoted to Jesus. He's not preeminent in their life. He's not the crown jewel of their life. He serves a function, certainly. Maybe it's a therapeutic function where they they go to church and it makes them feel good. Maybe there's a moralistic side of it or an altruistic side where they they go and they, they can help other people and they can do good in the world. But they're not making Jesus preeminent. And so worship is kind of like, all right, we got to keep it to a tight hour and uh, got got my duty done another week. That's not worship. That's an external obligation. That's ultimately self-serving. Worship requires devotion. If Jesus is worthy of worship on Sundays, isn't he worthy of worship at all times? And if he's your crown jewel, that means that your entire life revolves around him. You're loyal to him first and foremost. You passionately serve him. You have a single-minded desire to please him. Your commitment to Christ is stronger than anyone else. Worship requires devotion. And when we are devoted to Jesus, there's something else that happens. We start to imitate him. There's, There's a component of imitation here in worship as well. When a child worships their hero, they start to imitate them. When I was in elementary school, growing up in New Hampshire, the the sports team that everyone loved was the Boston Red Sox. And when I was 10, the Red Sox got a new shortstop named Nomar Garcia Parra. Great Italian name. And he was kind of goofy at the plate. He would step up, some of you remember him. He would step up to the plate and he had more ticks and wiggles than, than a toddler. 
he'd adjust his helmet, he'd cross himself because he was Catholic, and then he'd adjust his batting gloves, and he'd tap his shins, and he'd tap the plate and dance around a little bit, and you're kind of like, wow, that's kind of exhausting just to look at what you're doing. But he was good. He was really good. He was an all-star. And so you know what happened? You know what you would see driving around New England on Little League fields all across the state? You would see little boys doing the same thing that he was doing with far fewer results, certainly. But their worship of their hero resulted in imitation. When God saved us, he called us to imitate Jesus. The Christian life is a quest to become more Christ-like, to look like and think like and live like Jesus. Sometimes we get really complicated in our Christian lives, and really, you're just trying to resemble Jesus. That's all you're trying to do. What would Jesus do in this moment? How would he think? How would he act? How would he interact with other people? That's your goal today. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of your salvation is not so that you can put your fire insurance card in your pocket and say, good, got that one. That's a totally wrong view of salvation. You see, Jesus saved you so that you can resemble him. We're going to see that in the next verse in Colossians 1. You have a new purpose in life. And your purpose is to be conformed, to be molded, to be pressed into the image of Christ. Now, what's amazing about this verse is that the same key words are here that are in Colossians 1.15. Jesus in Colossians 1 is the image of God. But what does Romans say? We are being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We literally become like God as we imitate Christ. The word Christian means little Christ. That's our identity. That's our calling. That's who we are. And as we imitate Christ, we give him glory. How so? Romans 8, 29, that he might be the firstborn. Again, that word firstborn does not mean birthed first, but that he might be the primary, the preeminent one among all the other people. When we are conformed to the image of Christ, we give glory to God because he is being exalted. We're not being made in the image of another hero here on earth. We're being made in the image of our Savior, Jesus. Well, why should we do this? Actually, the little circle here completes if you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because this verse says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world, because we're supposed to be conformed to Christ. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? Because this is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. This is your reasonable service, your logical worship. If Jesus is God and we're called to be conformed to his image, then worship is simply becoming more and more like him. We're devoted to him. We're walking with him. We're imitating him. If Jesus is your crown jewel, these things will be part of your life. And I wrestled with, do I go into specifics here to try to apply this further? But, but honestly, we all have to, to wrestle with this. I had to wrestle with this as I put this message together. You have to say, am I devoted to the Lord? And am I imitating him? And to what extent am I? Because I don't think anyone here would honestly say, oh, yeah, yeah, I resemble Jesus good enough. 
So where do you need to improve this? Ask the Spirit of God to reveal an area of your life that you're not devoted to him, that you're not imitating him, ultimately that you're not worshiping him, and by his grace, confess and forsake it. Well, this is just one facet of Jesus' dazzling glory. And verse 16 contains another one. Verse 16 says that Jesus is the creator. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator and the response is to live for him. And this verse fleshes that out. First, we see that he created everything that exists. Two times, this verse says that Jesus created all things. He's the firstborn, the preeminent one over all the creation, because he brought the creation into existence. He created it. He is the agent of creation. Now, what's amazing is that we serve one God in three persons. The Trinity, right, is three gods. No, no, no. Three persons, one God. I'm up here teaching heresy. Now I got your attention. Everyone just looked up like, oh, no. Trinity, right? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in every action that, that, that God does, all three members are involved. And that's how it is for creation. Wait a minute. I thought, I thought God created the worlds. That's true. I thought Jesus created the worlds. That's true. How come Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters? That's true. You see, when, when God chooses to act, the Father initiates the action, the Son is the agent who accomplishes the action, and the Spirit is the means by which the, a, the action is brought to fruition. Think about the plan of salvation. God the Father foreordained before the foundations of the world what would happen. Jesus, as the agent of redemption, came to earth, lived perfectly, and died as our substitute. And when we receive the work of salvation, the Bible says the Spirit of God enters our hearts and seals us for the day of redemption. The Trinity is at work in redemption. At creation, the Father spoke the Word to create the universe. Jesus, who incidentally is the Word, created, and the Spirit of God brought it to pass. You say, can you explain it in more detail than that? No. Because our God is indescribable. If we could explain him, he would be a small God indeed. Now much of verse 16 describes the extent of Jesus' creative power. Paul could have just said, he created all things and moved on. But he really emphasizes how many things he means by all. And I'm going to give you a hint. When he says all things, he actually means all things. Shocking, I know. Jesus created things, he says first, in heaven and on earth. So look up. Everything you see, clouds, birds, planes, planets, stars, Jesus created it all. And then look around. People that you see in mountains to our west, trees, lakes. We could go on. Jesus created all these things. But then he also created the visible and the invisible. So everything you see, creatures, landscapes, ecosystems, even space, Jesus created but what about the parts of the universe we can't see, like the laws of nature, or microscopic organisms, or morality, or seasons, or the instincts of the animal kingdom? Jesus created it all. He also created spiritual realms, thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers. 
These terms refer to angelic and demonic powers. Jesus created spiritual beings, and as their creator, he owns them. He is foremost over them. He rules over them. And that truth is going to come back up in in chapter 2 as a key point, that, that the powers and the demonic forces that are alive and well in our world are subject to the Savior Jesus. All things were created by Jesus. This truth rejects any sort of evolutionary explanation for creation. Our culture is so saturated in, well, of course, evolution, well, of course, evolution, that we don't even think about it anymore. And that's what's being taught everywhere. Public schools, private schools, charter schools, there are very few of us who teach biblical creation. But this is one of the texts in the Bible that make it very clear. Jesus is the creator. Even some believers have tried to to mix evolution in the Bible with a position known as theistic evolution. And the gist of that is it teaches that God created the universe using the evolutionary process. But that's not true either. Because Jesus didn't create an amoeba that turned into an amphibian over a billion years. Jesus didn't create primordial soup (laughs) that billions of years later changed into atoms and angels and atmosphere. He created things, all things, directly. The universe exists because of him. And there are many people that are legitimately questioning, saying, well, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of evidence for evolution. And I would argue back to you that the same evidence can be used to support creation. In fact, it can be used to support creation even better. There are fewer gaps. There are fewer things that can't be explained when you accept at face face value that Jesus created the worlds. And one of our responsibilities as a church and as families One of our responsibilities is to teach a biblical worldview to the next generation. Young people are bombarded with these types of questions in high school, college, even younger. And if they're unprepared for the questions that their professors or their classmates will ask, they will walk into a college freshman level class, be challenged about their faith, and walk away from it because they don't think the Bible can explain it. Origins is one of the key worldview questions And the Bible answers that question with a clear answer. Jesus created the universe. And if you have questions about that, that's not a problem. There are organizations like Answers in Genesis or Creation Ministries that we had here last summer. These types of organizations literally exist to answer your questions about these things. I would encourage you to go look, go find answers because they're out there. The narrative of evolution is not true. Christ created all things. And when he created all things, he created everything for him. The last two words of verse 16 are loaded. It simply says, for him. Now we could easily move past this, but but I don't want us to miss this. That means that Jesus is the goal of creation. The entire creation exists for his glory. When an inventor creates something, he designs it for a specific purpose. And when that invention is used according to its design, the inventor, the one who came up with it, gets praised. They get accolades, and rightfully so. Thomas Edison uh, invented many things, but one of his best inventions was the incandescent light bulb. The light bulb revolutionized modern life. We are here in this structure because of light bulbs, because there are no windows to the outside in this auditorium. It would be very dark, 
no, I'm not going to have the guys turn off the lights just to spook you, okay? But we're here and using lights. Obviously, they've uh, been developed since that time. But we're not limited by the sun's rising and setting. Now, the light bulb has a very specific purpose it was used for. And it's really great when we use it for its purpose. But if you were to take a light bulb and use it as a baseball, how effective would it be? You probably get one pitch. If you took it to war and used it instead of a grenade, how would that go? If you used it as a hard-boiled egg, how would it taste? I mean, baseball, grenade, egg, they're all about the same size and shape. Not according to its design. Here's the point. How silly would it be to not use the light bulb for the goal it was created for? And how silly is it for any creature not to embrace their purpose in life that they were created for? Jesus created you. You exist for him. You have a purpose in life that goes far beyond your dreams and your plans because you exist to glorify him. We talked about origins a minute ago. Purpose is another key worldview component. It asks questions like, why am I here and what am I supposed to do with my life? Anyone ever thought those things before? (laughs) The Bible answers this question clearly. You are here because Jesus created you, and what you are to do with your life is to live for him. You will be most satisfied when you live for Jesus' glory. There are so many people in our world, millions of them in fact, that, that live unsatisfying lives, unfulfilled and empty. Maybe that's you. When a person rejects their God-ordained purpose in life and lives for something else, they should be frustrated. Life will feel meaningless because you're like a light bulb being used as a baseball. What is your purpose in life? 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all that those who live, here it is, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Your purpose in life is to live for Jesus's advantage. So stop living for yourself. Stop wasting years of your life saying, no, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and then later I'll serve Jesus. You're going to be unsatisfied if you do that. That's not what you were designed to do. To live for Jesus's advantage means that he is preeminent in your life. His will is your mission. His kingdom advancement is your agenda. And that's kind of uh, vague and, and, and lofty. So let me try to give you a couple of examples about living for Christ's advantage. As a teenager, there are several of you here today that are teens. If you are living for Jesus's advantage, you will be more concerned about what pleases Christ than what pleases your friends. You will choose to honor Christ when your peers are doing things like drugs or vaping, when you're gossiping or or slandering others, or when you're bullying. And if you're the only one in the group not doing it, you'll choose to stand alone because your life exists for Christ's glory, not for your friend's approval. Young adults will care deeply about serving the Lord and walking in holiness because those are two things that that really are thrown away from the 18 to 28-year-old years. Live for yourself. Find someone that pleases you. Enjoy everything you can. You will seek a mate, a spouse, who has the same goals in life. Jesus takes priority even over romance. Because compromising your beliefs to get a spouse always backfires. Not just some of the time, it always backfires. Those in the workforce will prioritize Christ instead of their career path. Instead of always saying yes to a promotion, 
There are other considerations. How will this new job affect my commitment to church, my ability to lead my family in holiness, my testimony in the workforce? Am I gonna have to make ethical decisions that, that are gonna compromise my conscience? What about stay-at-home moms? Moms will bow to Christ instead of letting their kids rule the home and the family schedule. Honoring Christ takes a higher priority than another enrichment opportunity. Because if, if in 18 years our kids grow up to be cultured, refined, talented, and ungodly, was it worth it? Retirees will choose to invest more time in serving. The pinnacle of retirement is not being able to go to the mountains or the beach whenever you want for weeks on end. The pinnacle of retirement is seeing how you can invest yourself in other believers and how Christ's kingdom can be advanced even in your older years of retirement. These are just a few ways. I didn't hit every demographic out there. If I missed you, I'm sorry. But these are just a few ways that we can choose to live for Jesus's advantage. When you start living for Christ, there's a, there's a result. You will find satisfaction because you were created for that. You were created to bring him glory. We have to move. Colossians 1.17, there's another aspect, the final aspect of Christ's glory. Not only did he create the universe, but he continues to watch over it as sustainer. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus is the sustainer. Depend on him. These two phrases build on one another. And the first seems to make a random point, and he is before all things. But it actually accentuates Jesus' brilliance. He exists outside of creation. That's the point here. The phrase, he is before all things, doesn't simply mean priority. It also points to Jesus existing before creation. It has an element of time in it. And there are two reasons that's important. It affirms an essential attribute of deity, which is pre-existence. We all had a definite begin point in our lives. Jesus never did. God has always existed. He has never had a beginning. He will never have an end. And if Jesus has always existed, that means that he is God. But second, if Jesus existed prior to the creation, that means that he is not dependent on it. He's not into it and and subjected to it like we are. There are certain things we cannot do in this world because we're part of the created order. Jesus is not dependent on the created order. In fact, it's the other way around. The created worlds depend on him. This makes the incarnation, as an aside, even more mind-blowing. That God would step into the world he created and willingly become part of it and willingly subject himself to the laws of nature and gravity and become a human. But it also means that Jesus can uphold the universe as its sustainer because it depends on him. He does not depend on it. He's not subjected to its laws because he set those laws in motion. He holds the universe together. In him, all things consist. Your translation may say, in him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. As one commentator put it, What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. All creation depends on him. And yet he's not overwhelmed by this responsibility. He upholds it all with just a word of his power. 
He's not a cosmic plate spinner who's constantly running from plate to plate to make sure things don't drop. He's not a sleep-deprived air traffic controller trying to make sure planes don't crash into each other on the runway. Every part of the universe is completely and safely under his control. Every part. There is nothing that happens that Jesus does not know about and watch over. Nothing. We are part of the creation. We are part of this universe. And that means that Jesus watches over you. The last couple of years have been very difficult from an inflation standpoint. Prices seem to skyrocket every day. It's like, oh, that's more expensive than the last time I bought it, last week. Many of you are on fixed incomes in retirement. And you're watching your fixed income margin get smaller and smaller. And you're thinking, how am I going to do this? The math doesn't add up if I keep going this direction. You younger families have been discouraged as you feel like there's no way you can get into the housing market. Decisions about buying a car, upgrades to the house, or even going on vacation are now like, I don't think we can do that. We're going to have to wait. So what happens when all these things come up? What happens when the world seems to be going a little bit out of control around us? We have to remember that Jesus is sustaining it all. We have to anchor ourselves in the Lord Jesus. He knows about inflation in 2023. He hasn't overlooked you. And because he is watching over you, you can trust him and you can lean into him. In fact, the response is not to say, well, God, what are you doing here? The response is, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm going to lean into you even more. He will never fail you or forsake you. If Jesus is your treasure, then certainly he can sustain you through the squeeze of inflation like he can sustain you in the years of plenty. And there are a thousand other applications we could make. Every part of the universe is completely and safely under his control. So what does this passage do? This passage elevates Jesus before our eyes. It calls us to treat him as the treasure that he truly is. It calls us to make him preeminent, not just in knowledge, but in heart and in practice. Earlier in the message, I referred to a man as a Puritan. The Puritans lived in the 1600s, primarily in Great Britain. These men wanted to purify the Church of England and see it become fully evangelical. They were preaching the gospel. And after some success, the political situation turned against them. In 1662, there was a a government act passed called the Act of Uniformity. And the result of that, I won't get into the nuances of it here, but the result of that was that many of these men were expelled from their pulpits and deprived of their living. They lost their job and their livelihood and had no income to spare. You can imagine the uncertainty that they faced. They're staring poverty and even imprisonment in the eyes. Yet what did these men do? These men and their wives and their children relied hard on Jesus. They stayed faithful to Christ because they treasured him more than anything else. That's what sustained them. That's what got them through the hardship. They believed that Jesus was so valuable that they were willing to suffer anything for him. And out of their suffering, God brought infinite treasure to us. John Bunyan is one of the men who suffered in prison. And from his prison pen, 
we receive a work like Pilgrim's Progress. Another man named Thomas Brooks wrote this. Christ is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds. As all who know who have him, get him and get all. Miss him and miss all. Don't miss Jesus. Don't hold this invaluable jewel in your hands. Turn it over and say, yeah, that's nice, and set it aside. That would be tragic. Don't walk out of here without making him the crown jewel of your life. Because Jesus is a treasure, he is preeminent, and he wants that status in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we've, in feeble words, heard about the glory of Christ. And, and it's so difficult to even just put into to language how glorious he is. Our imagination of him is so shallow and so low. But you remember our frame. You know that we're dust. You remember that we can't imagine. We can't picture glory that, that could consume us. And so we walk by faith, believing that what you say is true, believing that our Savior, who we've never seen, is as glorious as the scriptures say. As First Peter 1 says, whom we've not seen, we love him. I pray that you would move in our congregation today, that you would move in hearts and in minds, that we be challenged in the places that we are not submitting to Jesus' preeminence, that we are disjointed and out of step with the created order, that all the universe understands this, and yet here are we made in the image of God who don't. Forgive us, Father, for persisting in our own way, pursuing our own glory, living for our own advantage. May we present our bodies as a living sacrifice and render you the spiritual worship that you deserve as the crown jewel of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.